Welcome to the pulpit ministry of Christ Community Church in South Florida, aiming to make, mature, and multiply disciples by preaching and teaching God's Word based on the sufficiency of Scripture. And now, let's join Pastor Bernie Diaz for the message. Indeed, we worship by singing the Word, praying the Word, reading the Word out loud, preaching the Word. Hearing the word, there's sneezing in the background with the word. There's, and we give in the word, and we've done all of that. I think most of you are probably familiar with an old saying that God moves in mysterious ways. You've heard of that before, right? It's an oldie. Even though that's not a biblical phrase, you don't find it in scripture, I think there's some truth to it. If you just observe, What's going on in life in and out of the scriptures? You'll see that, for instance, this week I came upon a, a little story picture that is about a local church pastor, and he had to resign from his church. And it was difficult because he had a wife, three small children to support. And so before his surprised congregation, he announced his resignation at the morning service. And at approximately two o'clock that afternoon, the phone rang. And it was long distance. And the chairman of a pulpit committee from a church a thousand miles away was calling him to invite him to become the minister of a church, that church in transition. And it was a historic church, once had a powerful witness. I mean, attrition had taken its toll, it was kind of dying with dignity, and so the congregation had decided to move out. But after this prolonged conversation, the pastor just accepted over the phone. There was no interview, no trial sermon. The phone call was it. And this man never had a more fruitful, happy time in ministry anywhere than on that occasion. Now that's unconventional, isn't it? It's not usually the kind of way someone would be called to the ministry and you'd find a pastor. But God works in mysterious ways. Through the Holy Spirit, he finds a way to sovereignly work his will and his purpose in his church, in ways that we think of strange and mysterious. But the Word tells us, after all, His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. The fact is, in the Bible, we find God is sovereign. And He works out His will every millisecond of every day, including through His people, whether we see it or not. And that's what we call, a word you've been hearing us talk about, especially since the times of COVID. It's a word called providence. Providence. It was a very, it was a word commonly used in this country in church circles two, three centuries ago. So it has a long tradition. And I'll give you the simple definition up front. God's providence is his sovereignty in action. Sovereignty is his authority and his rule. Amen. And it's, I'll give you another definition, a little more technical. Providence is the act of providing for, sustaining, governing the world. And if you know my theology, you know I love and appreciate that about the Lord. Because it just crops up all over the pages of Scripture, as we're going to find today in the book of Acts. Now to kind of set the stage, keep in mind, the apostles have just seen Jesus Christ ascend to heaven after six weeks of his 
post-resurrection appearances. He's returned to the Father's side. He told them, go to Jerusalem, wait there. Final instructions are coming with an anointing of the Holy Spirit in order for you to fulfill the assignment I'm giving you, which is to be the power and the presence of Christ in the world, in his absence, as the church. To carry on his teaching ministry, his doing, until he comes back. That's the mission of the ministry in a nutshell, and really that sounds a lot like our mission statement of this church. I mean, doesn't it? It's just... I mean, in essence, we want to know, learn, live, give the gospel, advance the kingdom, be his witness near and far. And these apostles were getting ready to do that in what we called last time the Lord's Witness Preparation Program. And in our text today, we're going to get a wonderful insight, a display of what I call the providence of the Holy Spirit. Providence, the Holy Spirit, His working out the sovereignty of God in three different ways. And even though, as you just heard read, it's a pretty big chunk, good-sized portion of Scripture, we're going to go through it in such a way that we'll cover it all pretty quickly, and you, you'll follow. And what we're going to see is the Spirit's providence in preparation, in prophecy, and then third, in people. In preparation, prophecy, and people. Let's look at this preparation, starting in verse 12 again. When they returned to Jerusalem from the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, that's a Sabbath day journey away. That's about a half mile, three quarter mile walk they had back from Bethany. And in fact, remember the first volume of this two book series, you have the book of Luke written by Luke. Luke also wrote Acts. So there's an overlap there, particularly at the end of Luke and at the end of chapter 24 when they talk about being blessed in Bethany and going back to Jerusalem, it says that Jesus blessed them. While he blessed them, he parted from them, was carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him. And they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. Remember that? And they were continually in the temple blessing God. So they're worshipping, waiting for that promise of the Spirit to come. They're in preparation time. And then you heard, 11 apostles are named. Okay? And they're gathered in what's called the upper room. You've heard of that before. That's how it was known in Jerusalem. It was probably the upstairs of a private home that belonged to someone that was close to this group. And that became their headquarters. That's where they would meet for business it was their main place to meet for Jesus and the disciples. That's where the Lord had appeared before Thomas and others just a little a week, just over a week after he had resurrected. And it's the place, of course, where the last Passover meal together the night before Good Friday, they had that, which we would think of today appropriately as the first Lord's Supper. And we're observing the Lord's Supper today. And they had, they heard Jesus is teaching what's called the upper room discourse. So he's teaching about the Holy Spirit, the promise, all of that in John chapters 14 to 16. Now in the list, what you'll notice, the first four <coughs> apostles are normally at the head of every list in the Gospels. It always starts with the inner circle. Peter and the two brothers, John and James the sons of Zebedee, and because of their anger, their, their, their feistiness, they were also known as the sons of thunder. Now the Judas that's named in that list that you heard is not the same Judas who's the traitor 
we're going to hear about in the prophecy of this text. Judas was a very common name at that time. So, how are they preparing for this assignment? Look at verse 14. And these with one accord, all these with one accord, everybody there, were devoting or dedicating themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. So you've got apostles, you've got disciples, which is another word for followers. They're all part of this gathering in the upper room, including the women. The women, that's important. Beginning with Mary and his brothers. Jesus had half-brothers, blood relatives. And some, a couple of them, came to faith in Christ, largely by means of the resurrection, including his half-brother James. James would be martyred for the faith. And Jude, you know them. James and Jude are two New Testament writers, right? And notice what they're doing as they're waiting, as they were told to do last time. They're doing it being constantly united in prayer. Waiting on God is one of the hardest things to do in life. Amen? Amen. I'll be the first to tell you that. But it is a lot easier to wait on the Lord, I will say, if you're praying. And they were praying united. It says in one mind, one accord, meaning they were on the same page with their prayers. Supplication, petition, praying for the same things. One purpose. Now, We're not told, though, in the text what the purpose was of those prayer requests. But based on the context here, I think they were praying for that anointing that was to come from Spirit, like the Lord promised. And I think they were praying for courage, as we should, to be the witnesses that Jesus is calling them to be. And I think they're praying for the Lord's will to be done and having to choose the replacement for Judas. How are they going to do that? Right? But... What stuck out to me in this part of the passage, what a priority prayer is for the church. That is clearly pictured here as they're preparing for the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit to come and fulfill their ministry. They were dozens here of people, about 120 of them in the room. Adelphos, so there were men and women there. It's kind of a generic term for that. Now, we should add this about the women. He wants, Luke wants you to know women were there. In that time, in that place, women were disregarded as less than, but not in Christ, not in the Christian church. Luke wants you to know it's women that are here with the men as followers. Now, women were not apostles. They were disciples. Not all disciples are apostles. All apostles are disciples. All right? You get that difference? But the women served as key disciples in Jesus' ministry. They weren't preachers. They weren't pastors or elders in the church. But they were faithful in serving and in prayer. And we know that women have always played a key role in prayer ministry, as is the case in our church. And most likely, some of the women that would have been there would also include Mary Magdalene. You've heard of her. Mary, the mother of James the Less. Joses as well. Uh, Salome, they were probably among the first to see and report about the risen Christ, the resurrection. That's a big deal. And also take note about Mary. This is the last time you find Mary mentioned in the book of Acts. The mother of Jesus is listed as a disciple here, one of the women, but nothing more than that. Right? She's not a leader, she's not an apostle. She's not a co-mediator to pray to as our Catholic friends do. There's none of that in the Bible. Mary is the mother of Jesus 
and a disciple. Nothing more in terms of responsibility or anything like that or office. But this also pictures, talking about prayer, why we prioritize it the way we do here at CCC. We do it in our worship service, our midweek prayer meetings, which is very rare today for churches to do. Not too many churches are doing prayer meetings organized that way on a weekly or regular basis. It's a part of our shepherd group meetings. And uh, you are going to see this throughout early church history and throughout this book. Prayer, prayer, prayer. Because a lot of us think of prayer as just this personal time alone with God thing that we do. You know, individual thing. And that's good. It starts there. Maybe you fill it in with a little Sunday worship service prayer like we're doing now. And that's basically it. But people... Prayer is the oxygen of the church. Supposed to be like breathing for us, okay? We are to be in prayer constantly, personally and corporately, for sure. In fact, I'll give you an example. If you flipped over a page or two in your Bible, chapter 4, Peter's been imprisoned, he's been persecuted, preaching the gospel before the council. He's in prison and there's a prayer meeting. Prayer meeting to get him out of jail if the Lord would do that. Right? And so it says in Acts 4.31, When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That's what happens when you're filled with the Spirit. That's what can happen when you're praying. And... That's how it was for those first born-again believers as they prepared for ministry. Now, let's see how the providence of the Spirit works out in prophecy. Let's look at the prophecy part. Go back to our text, verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. Brothers, the Scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who had arrested Jesus. Peter is the early leader in the church. You're going to see that. In the first half of the book of Acts, a little less than the first half, it's concentrated in Jerusalem. Peter's the guy. He was assigned that way, anointed that way by the Lord, and we would see that if we looked at John 16 and 20. So he's in the midst of this pre-church congregation, and he teaches how the Old Testament had to be fulfilled or completed in Christ as Messiah and his mission, which providentially included the defection and the suicide of Jesus. Those predictions had to come true. And listen to how providence is played out to the nth degree in the Bible, even describing the what and the why of Judas, his apostasy, betrayal of Christ, and what would follow. Because what happened with Judas on the night of the plan of the Passover, folks, was planned to the T by God from eternity past. It was prophesied by David, and David didn't even know Judas from Adam centuries before. In fact, if you flip over to that upper room discourse that had happened some weeks before this event in John 13, Lord had just got through washing their feet, etc., in the middle of verse 18, he says, talking about who he chose to follow him, the scripture will be fulfilled. 
He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Ah, who's that? That's Judas. That parallels the language of the serpent who will bruise the heel of the Messiah, like Satan, back in Genesis 3. And then in John 17, 12, after the Passover meal, the Lord's about to be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's praying, and he prays this to the Father. He says, I kept them in your name, Father, which you have given me. I have guarded them, listen, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction that the scripture might be fulfilled. The son of destruction is, son of perdition, is Judas. <coughs> the Lord allowed him to be lost. In other words, he did not remain as one of the disciples. Now, I've, I've shared with you on more than one occasion when we've been in the Gospels, the providence of God, so you get this, folks, is in control over everything, even down to the most finite detail, but working in perfect harmony with human responsibility by his good will and pleasure. In fact, Acts 2 talks about that when Peter is before the gospel. In fact, flip over again real quick, talking about that prayer of, for the escape of Peter from jail in Acts 4. I want you to hear this. Acts 4, verses 27 and 28. These these people are together. They're they're praying to the Lord. And they pray, For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Did you get that? There are some people, liberal scholars, who think, wow, God was caught off guard. The Romans, the Jews, they wanted to kill Jesus, do all this stuff to Jesus. No, God planned it from eternity past, before the foundation of the world. Everything that happened that night, that week, was planned in every detail. And at the same time, those men were responsible for everything they did and all of their sin. God uses bad people sometimes to do good things, doesn't he? Judas is part of this plan. So whether it be in that or whether it be in salvation or the prayer of the, or the judgment of peoples and nations, God ordains both the means and the end to everything that he wills, everything he purposes, everything he wants to do. And so that's why you get the prophecy that continues here about Judas. Go back to where we were in the text. Verse 17, for he was numbered among us and he was allotted his share in the ministry. Right? Talks about a man who acquired the the field as a reward for his wickedness. And he fell, yes, this is pretty graphic. He fell headlong. He burst open in the middle and all his bowels or his intestines gushed out. Yikes. Now, that is graphic. What probably happened was he hung himself on a tree and either the branch, the branch broke off or maybe the noose around his neck at some point and he fell to his demise for what happened to happen. We obviously won't go more, much more in detail. There's probably some jagged rocks on the bottom. He might have been hanging over a cliff where he fell. Some skeptics think there's a contradiction in scriptures because Matthew's account says he only hung himself and he died. That's it, period. And then you get this part 
from Luke. But you can reconcile that together. There's just more detail in Luke's account than Matthew. There's no contradiction there. But back in verse 17, the Lord chose Judas as an original disciple and apostle to play a role in the ministry as treasurer and traitor. He was literally, it says in the original language, counted as, belonged as one of the original disciples. In fact, the Lord had talked about this, talked about him what was to come in John chapter 6, in verse 70. Just a quick comment, the Lord said, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. Wow. So the Lord knew that. He was given some responsibility in the ministry, you might remember. He would keep some of the treasury funds for himself, a little bit for the treasury, the ministry, a little bit more for me, a little for the treasury, a little more for me. And of course, you know very well that he sold out the Lord for 30 pieces of silver, as, by the way, another Old Testament prophet, Zechariah, had predicted centuries before. The exact amount. Which is why this man... And that name is the one that forever lives in infamy. Virtually every time the Gospels name the apostles that Judas is included, in the end it says Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Or Judas who is the traitor. So that tagline is always there so that no one, these Gospel writers wanted to make sure no one forget, for, would forget this is the son of perdition or the son of hell. So his name is synonymous with a traitor or betrayer. And we're reminded, of course, how that worked out for him not real well. Let's look here at verses 19 and 20 again. Um, it became known to all the inhabitants, this field where he was buried, Al-Kadama, field of blood, for it's written in the book of Psalms, listen to this, may his camp become desolate or deserted and let there be no one to dwell in it and let another take his office. What is that about? What you have here, Luke is quoting two Old Testament Psalms that are prophetic. They're predictive of what was to happen to Judas. The first quote is Psalm 69.25. The second is from 109.8. And in both cases, David's praying what's called an imprecatory psalm. You ever heard of that before? An imprecatory psalm is a psalm in which you are praying for God to avenge your enemies and for God to avenge his holy name with his wrath and with his justice. And so David was praying back then and it's being brought to mind for, for Judas at first reference basically is saying, Lord, I pray that you would leave my enemy homeless without a family and without a legacy, which is the case with Judas. He never had children. So this is what we see in Judas's suicide and having to be buried in this potter's field or field of blood. Then the second psalm is the same idea. David's pleading for vengeance to come to his enemy by saying, take his job, basically. Take away his position, his place. And that's exactly what happened to Judas. And that's why we have the reference to these two psalms. Listen, I'll tell you one of the most amazing things one of the beautiful things about the Word of God is the harmony of it, the credibility of the Word, the reliability. Every prophecy, prediction comes true. 
You have a New Testament writer here, Luke. He's inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to add two scriptures from the book of Psalms in the Old Testament in this prophetic passage. And he's pointing to this watershed Christian church moment centuries before. You know, that's why he says, for it is written. This is another incredible example of the sovereignty and the providence of God in the spirit through prophecy, which again, I should tell you, is one of the best proofs for the reliability of the Bible. When people come at you and say, the Bible is this, the Bible is that, I don't believe it. Say, you want to talk about some prophecy? You want to see about that? Let's go there. It's no wonder the New Testament writers relied so much on and quoted so much from the Old Testament, especially books like the Psalms and Isaiah. I'm just thinking of in particular. So we've seen already here the providence of the Holy Spirit in prophecy and preparation. Now, lastly, let's look at the people here. One person big time involved here. And this goes from verse 21 to the end of the chapter. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John till the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So now we're getting into the process of replacing Judas. And it culminates in a choice of one man between two disciples of Christ. And they had been with him from the beginning, day in, day out. The original Greek word has the idea of cohabitation. They they lived with Jesus. They spent a lot of time with him. Even before the time the official ministry kicked off, because they were there when John the Baptist was around baptizing. Right? Now, you might ask, I did, to myself, self, why, are there, why do there have to be 12 apostles? Why couldn't they have just stuck with the 11 left over after Judas killed himself? Why replace him at all? Why not 15 apostles? Why not 24? Why not 106? I mean, what would be the difference? Well, remember, there were 12 tribes in Israel. They were led by the leadership of 12 men and their people. And the Christian faith began in Jerusalem with a Messianic Jew in a Hebrew culture. And the Old Testament tells of this old covenant that was going to be fulfilled by Christ in the new covenant. So there's continuity there. Okay? So 12 apostles, you're already thinking, might make sense in leading the church like the 12 tribes over the chosen nation of Israel. And then get this, in Revelation 4, we read in heaven of 24 elders, leaders. And that would seem to argue, symbolically at least, you've got the 12 tribes and the 12 apostles together. makes 24, right? And then towards the end of our Bible, in Revelation 21, the new Jerusalem in heaven, remember we studied that last summer, that's surrounded by 12 gates on the 12 walls. And it says there, the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel were inscribed. So 12 appears to be a pretty significant number for the Lord, you think? So these apostles, then they wanted someone that was going to follow Jesus, right? That had been with the ministry from way back. And they're looking for loyalty, unlike Judas, and faithfulness. In fact, verse 22 tells us they would be faithful witnesses of the resurrection. 
And that's what this man would also be called to do to be a witness of the resurrection. So that means three things that are pretty important to me. Number one, a familiar necessary prerequisite for being named an apostle. So you know this in the church age was that you had to have witnessed the resurrected Christ. You had to have seen the resurrected Christ. Number two, you had to have spent considerable time with Christ. We talked about that. These two candidates were qualified in that way. They lived with the Lord. They saw him in his post-resurrection appearances. Number three, you're going to notice, they had to be witnesses of the resurrection and that they would be willing to preach, to tell of it, to testify of it, the truth of the risen Christ. Just like we talked about being that being a foundation of our evangelism and our witnessing a couple of weeks ago. There's no such thing, folks, as silent witnesses in the church. In that way, we're like these 12 men. We are to be witnesses telling, talking about the resurrection, the risen Christ. Keeping that to yourself was not helpful. Back then, it was not an option. You had to tell people what you saw. That's what witnesses do. They testify right? We have to talk about the historic life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Give the proof of it when we can as an effective means of proclaiming the truth of the gospel so people would be saved, right? That's a hill to die on. That's God's plan to put that out there. Like verse 23 says, and they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is called Justus, and Matthias. Now, because of the fact that many Hebrew Bibles, many Bibles, period, names were common and they would parallel other names, we're not told a lot about these two men. Joseph of Barsabbas, we don't know his other alias was Justus. Uh, he might have been the same man who was ID'd, identified as a worker. Later on we hear about a worker of the gospel in Acts and in Colossians. May have been him. But we know this about Matthias. He got the nod. He's the guy. But the only time he's mentioned in Scripture is here. So go ahead to verse 24. They prayed, they prayed, and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, that's very important, show which one of these two you have chosen, you have chosen, to take the place in this ministry an apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. I love that. Because you see really clearly here the right theology of these apostles already, even back then. They're acknowledging, following the providence of the Spirit, who happens to be the Spirit of Christ. He searches and knows the hearts and minds of all men. They're in prayer. They're relying on, by the way, prayer fasting, always preceded any big decision. The apostles didn't do anything important, anything significant, unless they had prayed. They know that God, the Holy Spirit, is sovereign. They want to be in His will. They agreed. The man chosen had been chosen already by the Lord. What they're looking for is just confirmation here. Which of these men is God's choice to succeed Judas as an apostle who left to do his own thing? And we know what happened there. That was a Fatal mistake. So, these men who are left to turn the world upside down are looking for confirmation. What are they going to do? How are they going to get that? Did they do what Gideon did? Remember in the book of uh, Judges? He had to take on the Midianites 
this huge army for the Lord's glory. The Lord wanted him to pare down the army, so he takes out a fleece. And he says, uh, Lord, if you would, this is how we're going to make this decision, Lord, how you give me confirmation. I'll leave out the fleece wet, and if the ground is dry and the fleece is wet, the next day I'll know that you want me to do it. And then the Lord works with Gideon and does it. And Gideon's like, well, let's make double sure, Lord. <laughs> so the next day I'll put it out, and the fleece would be dry, and the ground would be wet. Something like that. I probably got it all wrong. Wet and dry. And that's how it worked for Gideon. But it's a little different here. Look at verse 26. And they cast lots for them. And the lot fell on Matthias. And he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Or he was literally in the Greek chosen, counted as number 12. Now, for starters, we have to mention there are some theologians, some believers, who think that Matthias was mistakenly chosen by Peter and the others as the 12th apostle. He was not the guy, they think, not the person for this position. They would argue and make a case. This is a historic New Testament narrative, a lot like the Old Testament. So Luke isn't making a theological argument or teaching for the apostleship of Matthias. He's just a historian reporting what happened and what the people did in the upper room. That wasn't necessarily the will of God. They could also say the Holy Spirit had not yet come upon everyone yet. All of them, the anointing of the early church doesn't happen until chapter 2, which we'll begin to open up next time. So they weren't led yet by the Lord in that way. And most of all... How could God choose the 12th apostle of the church or confirm it by casting lots? I mean, that's kind of like a random coin flipping kind of a thing, isn't it? Well, casting lots, what are we talking about? This is a Cuban game called Gubiletes. It's a poker game that's a lot like casting lots because what you would have is stones Inside a container that was open just like this, and they would do just like this and pour it out. And the first name that came out, names were painted on the stone, was the decision, was the call. All right. That was customary in Israel. And even among not only God's people, but the Romans, the Roman soldiers did this. Cast lots when they divided the garments of the Lord when he was being crucified at the foot of the cross. For who would get what? And check this out. This is common. God had his priests cast lots to choose the scapegoat that carried the sins out of the temple on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, out of the city because they had two goats to choose from. So that's how they settled that. So was this decision a game of chance or is this a legitimate way to choose an apostle? I will say this, the New Testament nowhere condemns or condones the way the apostles did this. Casting lots was a biblically allowed method of making, confirming a decision that had happened a lot. And get this. Listen to Proverbs 16.33. The lot 
is cast into the lap. But it's every decision is from the Lord. Ho! That's providence. That's sovereignty, folks. That means God is in control of and directs the outcome of every lot that is cast and every roll of the dice. God knows what's coming out in advance and what it's going to say and what it does. That's every hand you play in poker or if you prefer, uh, prefer Uno. You roll the dice. It's all under the sovereignty and providence of God. So as I've often said, continue to say, in the universe, if the Bible is true and God exists, there is no such thing as chance, fate, luck, or coincidence. They don't exist. If God exists. Because you can't have both. You can't have an all-sovereign providential God and something happen randomly. That's a contradiction in terms. So you got to know that. I take comfort in that. I take confidence in that. I love that. Some people get all freaked out with that. So be it. It's in the scripture. And let's not forget, by the way, that these people in the upper room were praying for this outcome before they cast lots. They were doing the right thing. You know, I, I believe... I believe the Lord could have used that to choose that 12th disciple. I think he did. I'm of the view that they cast lots to choose Matthias. He's the apostle that replaced Judas. And let's not forget, aside from their praying, church history records Matthias did die as a martyr for Christ, like all the other apostles except John. We know Paul was an apostle also. Yes, he was certainly more prominent than Matthias, but I would put... Paul as the 13th apostle. Lucky 13? No. No such thing, right? I was waiting for someone to chime in. We're going to find out about this, by the way, for sure in glory. This is not a hill to die on. But you hear this and you say, well, why don't we select spiritual leaders like this today then? Why don't we do it the same way? It's good enough for them. What about us? First off, we don't have to worry about selecting or following an apostle in the sense of an office because every Christian, we are all apostles in the sense we're messengers. That's literally what the Greek word for apostle means, by the way. Think of it as like missionaries. That's what missionaries are. But I think the Bible shows us that the office of the apostle closed with Paul in Ephesians 2. And thankfully, our selection process for leadership is a little more spirit-empowered, led, and they had the opportunity for. And you're going to find that later in the book of Acts, by the way, as Acts goes out throughout church history. So, and by the way, lots, the casting of lots is never mentioned again in the Bible after this event. It's the last time we hear of it. That was it. So godly men, this is how it happens. Godly men, leaders in the church, they seek out and call men who sense the Lord's calling on their lives to serve. And then their gifting is confirmed. We get a lot of detail on that in the pastoral epistles, which are letters. First Timothy, Titus, and that's where their character is analyzed, their gifting is qualified, like their ability to teach the word. So that's a lot more in-depth than what we had here in the book of Acts, casting of lots. But in either case, 
The providence of the Spirit, you see, is being manifested. You can see it. God's at work in either process. God's will of decree, that's what he orders, makes happen. He guaranteed, I believe, that Matthias would be numbered and the 12th apostle at that time. God the Spirit made it work. And you want to know how our Lord would choose disciples, by the way? If you were in Luke's gospel, again in chapter 6, which is his account of the Sermon on the Mount, there's probably another Sermon on the Mount that the Lord preached. It's thought that he preached that sermon more than one time. But in Luke chapter 6, look at what the Lord did. Verse 12, In these days he went out to the mountain to what? Pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called or chose his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles. That's how the Lord did it. And for us today, we make decisions, folks, by virtue of prayer and the word with the leading of the Holy Spirit. We don't cast lots anymore, okay? We don't need to do that. We don't roll the dice. We don't take out a fleece. We don't play a Ouija board or see a palm reader or have your tarot cards read because all that stuff is of the enemy anyway. We don't guess either. It's not how you make decisions. We seek the revealed will of the Lord in the word of the Lord with prayer and godly counsel. So as we close, just I'll tell you, a big takeaway is when you're struggling in your faith, or you know someone who is, and you might have to actually ask them the question or ask yourself, ask yourself, am I, or is my friend, family member, a Judas? Wow, really? I don't necessarily mean as a traitor that's going to outwardly betray or become an enemy of Christ, but someone who walks away from the faith for good That's what an apostate is. That's a Judas. And even though, folks, I believe the Bible teaches assurance of salvation, eternal security, something like what happened to Judas can happen to any one of us in this room. It's been said, Judas kissed the door of heaven but went to hell. Jesus picked him as an apostle, but he went to hell. He lived with Jesus for three years and still went to hell. He watched Jesus walk on the water and still went to hell. He listened to the Sermon on the Mount and still went to hell. He ate with Jesus, talked with Jesus, walked with Jesus, listened to Jesus day after day, month after month, year after year, and still he went to hell. And remember this, none of the disciples suspected him as that guy. That's why he had been chosen to be the treasurer. They actually trusted him to keep their money. Even at the Last Supper, when Jesus called out Judas publicly, they still couldn't figure it out. So do you know who among you may be most likely to be a Judas? And I'll tell you what, Judas does us a favor if he causes us to rethink our faith and commitment to Jesus Christ, particularly today as we're going to come now to the Lord's table. Right? Especially... I'm talking to you if you're in a season of your walk with him. It's very cold. Maybe you've fallen out of love for him. Paul wrote, 
in 2 Corinthians, think about this as you come to the Lord's table, Paul wrote, examine yourselves to see if you're in the faith. So if you call yourself a Christian, do you walk and talk like one or are you just going through the motions? Are you a fake, like Judas was, or the real deal? Are you just a fan? Taylor Swift has got a lot of those right now. Or are you a true follower of Jesus? Because there's a difference between a fan and a follower. Right? Let's pray. Father, we thank you of the lessons learned even as we just hear a story of the first church and its disciples and apostles being called, chosen, prepared to ministry. We see the sovereignty, your sovereign hand and providence everywhere, Lord God, even in prophecy and in people, how you choose and do what you do and how you work. It is a marvelous thing to see with great implication and application for us, Lord God. So I thank you for that, Lord. I thank you for what we've learned today. May the Spirit now be opening up our ears and hearts, Lord, to apply what we've learned, that we would be not only edified by this, but just exhorted, Lord. We would be encouraged. And that salvation seeds are being sown right now in someone that came into this room today, not knowing for sure that if they would die, they would go to heaven, that they would know Jesus as their Lord and Savior. So I pray today that someone like that might turn away from their old sin and self as we come to the Lord's table. And they would turn to you, Father God. Christ Community Church is a God-glorifying, Christ-exalting, and Bible-centered body of believers who love God and love people by making disciples of Jesus Christ. For more information on us and to learn how to give towards our media ministry, please go to our website at www.christcomchurch.org. That's christcomchurchcom.org. And look for the Giving tab at the top of the homepage.